0: I'm Christian Blood, KTSA News, and now let's get things started with the Jack Riccardi Show. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back from the weekend. I
1: heard you talking a little bit about, uh, and I heard uh, Joe talking a little bit about the NFL, so what is your reaction to uh, porn star Jimmy going to Las Vegas.
0: Well, you knew the the Raiders needed somebody. I, I just yeah. felt like somehow they were going. I know all the talk is Aaron Rodgers to New York, and I get mm-hmm. it, bigger market, mm-hmm. whatever. But I thought the Raiders might really make a push to mm-hmm. get Rodgers, and st- mm-hmm. I just thought that was a fit. You know, you've got kind of the yeah. the black and silver renegade reputation, and then Rodgers yeah. is kind of your. You know, no, I don't fit any locker room, <laughs> you know, whatever, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I don't know if it, how much does it improve the Raiders? Time will tell.
1: I think Garoppolo is like the Marcus Mariota of ten years ago or
0: five years ago or something. He's, just, he's good for now. It's a good move for now. He's a bus driver, and I think we'll know exactly what the Raiders are thinking when we get to the draft next month. Because yeah. if they don't prioritize quarterback, they must think they can win with Jimmy G over the next couple of years, yeah. or he might just be that stopgap, which is what I think. Yeah, I do, too.
1: All right, well, uh, obviously, we got a lot to talk about today. Welcome to our dreadful little show. Hope you're having a good spring break week. If this is your spring break week, you can join the show at 210-599-5555. Well, it's not the most interesting topic, but obviously, the big story today is this Silicon Valley Bank story, and I've been reading a lot about it, and I've been hearing a lot about it, and... um. This was a bank that in one sense was not like your bank or my bank and most banks. It had a very niche, uh, kind of business. Uh, it, it, it had a balance sheet that was different. It was a haven for specific kinds of businesses like tech startups and crypto and IPOs of companies that aren't making money yet. What, what, what they sometimes call, um, shiny object companies. Oh, this is going to be big. You know, this is going to be great. Right now it's nothing. And so, um, this bank went into this death spiral uh very quickly very all of a sudden and um then people started freaking out about other banks with similar balance sheets and then people started thinking well how how strong is my bank and and so while all of that was going on You had the politicians talking about, now we all, we all know about the FDIC and insurance for deposits up to, it used to be a hundred thousand, now it's $250,000. But then the politicians come out and say, well, we're going to, we're going to go beyond that. We're going to go over and above that. And see, I think the, I think the part of this, the first part of this that's very confusing is after the, the meltdown of 2006, 2007, 2008, The politicians, like then President Barack Obama in 2009 and 2010, said, "Never again. We're never doing bit too big to fails. We're never doing bailouts." But when you hear them talking about, "We're gonna, we're gonna make everybody whole, and we're gonna take care of everybody, and all the invest," that sounds like uh, the same thing. And what I'm hearing people say is, "Well, we don't want to bail out this bank." But we don't want there to be a run on banks, a contagion, uh, a pandemic of panic. And unlike the past, you have people able to move much more quickly, move money much more quickly, news travels faster, rumors travel faster. But before we get into all the nuts and bolts of it, let's just remember how different we are as a people than, say, during the Great Depression. I was thinking about this today. When we had the Great Depression and there was a run on the banks and Franklin Roosevelt declared a bank holiday, he got on radio, and I I don't remember the exact date of this. It might have been before he was actually sworn in as president or it might have been right after he was sworn in as president because in 1933 they didn't swear the president in until March 4th. So when you won the 1932 election, you had to wait months and months to become president. So it might have been during that period. But anyway, he gets on radio, and he explains to people, this is 90 years ago, and he explains to people that um, when you put a dollar in the bank, the bank doesn't take your dollar and put it in a box with your name on it. The bank takes 70, 80, 90 cents of that dollar and invests it in other things in businesses, in farms, and what have you, loans. Because the thinking is, you when you come back and you want that dollar, they've just got to make sure they have enough on any given day, any given week, for however many people they think will come in and want their dollar. But not everybody's going to want their dollar all at once. And, and Roosevelt's explaining this on the radio, and he's saying, right now everybody wants their dollar, and we can't have that. The banks don't have that money. So he's telling people this 90 years ago. And I'm wondering why we still don't know it. Why do we still not know it? And if anything, are we even a less educated population about basic economics? Are we potentially even a less informed population? I don't mean you, don't take offense. Where people really are kind of sheeple. And, and easily, easily, uh, panicked. So depending upon who you listen to today, this is either no big deal for most of us, or this is the beginning of something big. Either this is a very unique bank in a very unique situation, and they shouldn't, they, they escaped regulation or oversight, and they shouldn't have, and they got, they got into trouble. Or there are people out there saying, no, 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 don't, don't think this has nothing to do with you. I read a blog by a woman uh, over the weekend. I forget her name. And she was making the case that when you hear the words Silicon Valley, most Americans kind of think of, you know, either yuppies or, or, you know, billionaires or uh, people out in, in the San Francisco area or what have you. But, but she was, she was making the point, no, 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 Silicon Valley is, is Main Street now. OK, so high tech isn't something way over there on the other side of the country. High tech is the the businesses you patronize and the and the stores you go to and then your neighbor and, and, and a lot of people work for tech without realizing they work for tech because tech is so intrinsic to whatever their company does or whatever they do. So she was trying to make the point, hey, this is not about rich people or, you know, uh, long haired hippie freaks that started something in their garage. And she was trying to say, I, I'm I'm. I'm just like you. I drive a used Honda Odyssey, and I, uh, you know, I have my kids, and you know, I'm just trying to pay the bills. But then when I read her Twitter profile, she had worked for McKinsey, which is the consulting firm. I know, right? The consulting firm that Buttigieg worked for, and she had made like two or three hundred thousand dollars a year. And she's not who she claims to be. But I think that's going to be the spin here. I think the spin on this. Silicon Valley Bank story is going to be, hey, we're you. We're, we're Main Street. You, you, of course, you want us rescued. Uh, not we're too big to fail. We're too you to fail. So that's what I think is going to happen here. Um, I think people are also looking at the, the divide or the, the contradiction. They see, they hear Joe Biden and his administration hail the economy as so strong, strong as hell, he said the other day. But it looks like everything is falling apart everywhere. Uh, on Friday, the stock exchange halted trading of Charles Schwab. There was a panic on that. Now there have been a couple of other banks that have hit the rocks after this Silicon Valley Bank did. Um, and now we have this talk about, you know, bailouts, and, of course, it's inflation. The higher interest rates needed to combat inflation have essentially knocked out the cheap money expectations that a lot of these startups in the SVB portfolio were based on. So they were funding like it was 2019, but there's a big difference between 2019 and 2023. So this isn't like the last time in some ways, but it's, I don't think it's something that's going to be limited to just the one bank. And, and again, e- even if intellectually or technically, uh, SVB is a unique thing, can politicians at this point stop people from panicking? And if people panic, then that becomes the, the event itself. In other words, a run on the banks is the event. Um, you can't just sit there on your television screen and say, well, people don't do this. I don't know if you've noticed, but especially after the last few years, there aren't very many people that everyone trusts. There isn't a voice of authority, either in government or really anywhere else. The president came out this morning and talked about this. Did you see this? And the, the the president was on television, and I thought to myself, "This seems a little early for him." And sure enough, good old Jen Psaki, who now works for CNN, helpfully pointed out on her panel that this was very significant for Biden to come out so early because, and this is what she said, I'm quoting her: "He never does anything before nine in the morning. The president of the United States never does anything before nine in the morning, but he somehow got himself up and." Out and dressed and, 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 and made a kind of a nothing burger speech. And, and then, you know how sometimes when Biden is on the stage and he can't find the, like the exit or the, the stairs to go down or which door to, man, he hit that door. He was like Ricky Henderson stealing second base. He hit that door. He found the door. He was through the door. They couldn't ask him any questions. Mr. President, Mr. President, boom, through the, he knew which door to go through today. Man can get off a stage in a hurry when he needs to. You know, I think part of the problem on this banking thing is going to be Janet Yellen. Uh, I mean, the, the, she may know her stuff, but the, the administration has got to find somebody else to put out there to talk about this. It's somebody said to me, it's, it's like listening to, it's like listening to Carol Channing talk about the banking system. Here's, here's uh, the treasury secretary. On uh, Face the Nation on CBS yesterday. Listen to this, cut number
2: four.
3: Does the government need to intervene and take emergency measures because of SVB's failure?
2: Well, let me say America's economy relies on a safe and sound banking system that can provide for the credit needs of our households and businesses. So whenever a bank, especially one like Silicon Valley Bank, with billions of dollars uh, in deposits, fails, it's clearly a concern. Um, from the standpoint of depositors, many of which may be small businesses, uh, they rely on access yeah, to See, death.
1: this is not, they're not going <laughs> to, they're going to have to find somebody who can retail this a little bit uh, better it's like hello dolly well hello dolly uh 210 599 5555 i don't uh, i don't think anything is weirder in this story for me so far than hearing everybody from politicians to um news people and commentators talk about how well don't worry the 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 consumers will not pay the cost of uh bailing out or you know shoring up uh these uh these deposits because we have a fund for that yeah well the fund is going to run out of money the fund is created by fees and charges off of customers you and me so we are absolutely paying for and going to be paying for uh, whatever they're doing. A- and interest rates going up, we're going to be paying. I mean, th- this is on you, even if your bank is okay and you feel a million miles away from Silicon Valley. This is on you, this is on me. Um, and I-, I think people have got to stop believing the lie about Uh, we're never, we're never going to bail out. There'll never be another bailout. Democrats said it. Uh, Republicans are saying it now. You don't really think that this administration is going to let any rich, liberal, Silicon Valley, effete snobs lose their, their shirts. You don't really think that's going to happen. And so it's gone from too big to fail to probably too connected to fail. One way or another, the middle class will pay for every penny of whatever this winds up costing and however they you know, wind up uh, uh, doing this. And... I think their only hope at the White House is they can find somebody better than Janet Yellen to explain that. But 210-599-5555, your thoughts on all this, uh, how you're feeling about it. Robert is on the radio on KTSA. Robert, good afternoon.
4: Good afternoon. Well, you know, never let a good crisis, real or imagined, go to waste.
1: Is this real or imagined?
4: Uh, I'm not sure. It may be a little bit of both, but they're definitely going to take advantage of it.
1: Yeah, like what do you expect and, is going to happen?
4: Well, somebody's going to pay for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. we're we're going to fill it in our pockets. Yeah. Now, yeah. Uh, about two years ago, maybe a few more, there was a uh, run on gasoline because somebody posted something dumb on the Internet, mm-hmm. and everyone mm-hmm. uh, reacted to it. Yeah, I remember that. And I I, I, ma- I imagine there's a real danger here of between the oh it's nothing to worry about and oh I didn't get paid being put out. Yep. We'll yep. panic and they'll do dumb things.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think I think you're saying the same thing I was saying, which is that the the greater concern is not what is actually going on at that bank, but if people take this to mean banks are not trustworthy or solid anymore, I gotta get out of there. Then you have a run on banks and that's its own, that's its own crisis. That, that makes its own gravy. Thank you, Robert. I appreciate the call. Um, his, his analogy to the gas station thing. I think it was more than a few years ago. I do remember that though. Do you remember it? It was just you, you went to work in the morning. Everything was fine. If you filled up, you got gas. And then as the afternoon went on, it was a weekday. You came out of work. Maybe you weren't even. Going to stop for gas, but as you were driving, you looked and you said, "Wait, wait, what? What is going on at the gas station here?" There'd be like there's like a mob scene of cars. They were every which way. People were honking at each other, getting out of their cars, yelling. And then, okay, well maybe it's just that. Then you drive a little for Oh, wait, it's happening here. And then you start thinking, "Well, I don't really need gas, but something's going on. I better get gas." They don't have anything on the news about it. So then everybody, and it just fed on itself. So yeah that that is the kind of thing that that could happen here um and, and I I come back to what I was saying earlier about how, how are we going how is this whole country going to work if we don't have an educated informed populace if we keep intentionally dumbing down public school students and emphasizing their gender choices more than their understanding of basic life skills like economics and 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 how money works. If we keep doing this, and we keep people in the dark, and we keep them stupid, don't be surprised if they panic, because that's what that's exactly what you would do. And 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 then when the so-called authorities come out, and they say, "Don't worry, we've got this," you're looking at them and you're going, "Well, you you look like the people that told me it would be 14 days to flatten the curve. You you look like the people that." Told me, you know, um, if I put a mask on, this would all be over in a few months, or we'd be back, uh, back in the malls by Easter or whatever it was. So we're living in a time where the people that think they can just come out, oh, we'll just put Janet Yellen in all the morning shows and she'll reassure everybody, and she's, you know, old and authoritative. No, it's not going to happen this time. So I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not. I'm not a financial advisor. I, I didn't go pull my money out of my bank. I, I, I wouldn't know where to I wouldn't know where to put it, to be honest with you, and I don't have that much of it. But um I, I just don't think the combination of lying, completely lacking in credibility leaders and experts over here, and then over there, a growing American population of people that don't know basic econ 101 because the schools refuse to teach it because they're sp- spending so much time being woke and, and and uh, you know, current. I think that's a bad combination. And so 90 years ago, FDR could give that fireside chat, could say, you know, dollar in the bank doesn't mean a dollar in a box. That's not where we are now. Uh, and... In essence, the, the government today and over the weekend has been acting like it still has credibility. And they maybe believe that they do. But from where I'm sitting, I don't think people are buying their reassurances. So we actually had the second and third largest bank failures in U.S. history over the last few days. SVB and a company called Signature Bank, which had a similar profile to SVB. Uh, and, and, these are the biggest since the too-big-to-fails of 2007-2008. Um, you're not getting straight talk from the politicians because inflation is a big driver of this. Regulation is a big driver of this. Um, and frankly, I, I, I say they need to find a better communicator than Janet Yellen, but frankly, this is one of those moments we've talked about before where if there is a lack of credibility in the expert class, if people don't believe that voices of authority are straight shooters, if they don't believe that the scientific expert or the the uh, you know the, the 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 criminal justice expert or in this case the financial services expert, if they don't believe that that is a straight shooter, a person that just plays it straight and doesn't favor one party or the other or one agenda or the other, if people don't believe that, then you can make all the proclamations you want, and it doesn't matter. I would call this the Fauci effect. I know Fauci thinks the Fauci effect is young people idolizing him and wanting to go to medical school. I think the Fauci effect is that now, when they say, "Oh, let's get our expert to go out and reassure everybody," that doesn't work anymore. You know, the the voice of authority is a voice without credibility. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. And I have to come back to what I said about education. We're in a very strange time because we are not doing our best to educate and illuminate our citizens as to their rights and as to the the rules of the road. We are actually doing the opposite. Public school education is now a systematic attempt to keep people from fully understanding how the government works, who has the power, what their rights are. And the great thing about capitalism is you you have a lot of choices, but your choices matter. And when a a regime is afraid of its own people learning too much or knowing too much, that's a very dangerous thing. So we used to say, oh, the schools aren't as great as they used to be, they need more money. Yeah, you know, we're not investing enough in them. And then we said the schools aren't what they should be because we we don't pay teachers enough. No one could ever say what enough was, but it was never enough. And it went up and it went up and went up but it still wasn't enough. And now I think we know that the real answer is They are afraid of an informed, educated public, so they are making sure we don't have one. Now, what does that mean in this story? Well, if this is a one-off thing with this bank and it doesn't really connote anything for your bank or my bank or other banks, then people need to understand why that is. But if it does have implications for other banks, smaller banks, you know, there's the there's the big, uh, what do they call them, the big four that are so big that the government would never let anything happen to them. I think it's Chase and Citibank and Bank of America and, what, Wells Fargo, I think. I may, I may be off about that, but I think those are the four. But people have said over the weekend, well, you know, other than those four, uh, everybody else is on the table. I don't know if that's true or not. But like Robert said before the break, it doesn't really matter what the fundamentals are it matters what people do in this moment. And, and people that don't have all the facts or people that are unable to sort of understand what's happening may panic. and That's your crisis. So um, ignorance of economics, ignorance of the power of government, ignorance of history... I mean look at look at the way they acted with the release of the J6 video the the democrats are 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 acting like they genuinely think it would be dangerous for you to see the video now that tells me that if you see the video it's not very good for their narrative but it also tells me that this is this is part of a theme this is part of a pattern people don't need to know you don't need to know We'll, we'll make the decisions. You don't need to know what goes into them. They did it with COVID. They're doing it with banking. 210-599-5555. Um, I'm not talking about indifference. I'm not talking about people that, you know, if, if people are lazy or people don't read or don't follow the news. There's nothing we can do about that. I'm talking about the way we produce Citizens. Are the schools there to give you all the tools and give you the the foundation to be a a participating, voting, uh, informed, uh, skeptical, empowered American? Or are schools churning out uh, sort of mindless drones who have been propagandized, who just have simple messages about capitalism, like, well, banking is corrupt and all capitalism is evil, so yeah, of course. That's what I'm afraid of. That's what I think we're doing. I think that's what we're seeing right now. If there is some sort of panic, that will be as much a factor as as anything else. 210-599-5555. Eleanor is on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Eleanor, good afternoon.
3: Good afternoon. Um, Well, assuming he knew what he was saying, which is always questionable, Biden's cynicism was on full display today when he said he was very careful in the wording he used. He said the taxpayers will not be on the hook for this. (laughs) Well, obviously, it's not the taxpayers who are on the hook for it. It's all of us who use banking services.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's no there's no source for the funding that he is referring to other than you and I. It, do- it doesn't come from anywhere else.
3: Correct. But his his saying the taxpayers mm-hmm. when it's not the taxpayers at all, I mean, it's not a it's not a taxing issue. Um.
1: But have, you have you noticed that they? you politicians? Deflection. Have you noticed how often politicians refer to us as taxpayers? Why is that our only title? Is that all we? Is that all we mean to them? Is that all we're good for?
3: Well, you know what? I, I prefer that to how they used to refer to us in the '60s, which was as the little people.
1: <laughs> I don't know. That's a that's that's pretty. Those are pretty close. Because I mean, calling me a taxpayer is like ignoring what I do. To create value, that then that then allows me to pay the taxes. Calling me a taxpayer reduces my entire existence to being <laughs> basically food for their for their beast. That's all I'm, <laughs> I exist for. Drone. You might yes. as well call your husband a sperm donor. You know, you might as well just say, "Well, that's all he is."
3: <laughs> yeah. Well. Uh, the uneducated masses will be reassured by his statement today because somehow they know that it won't hit them in the pocketbook now.
1: Yeah, no, I think that was a good catch, Eleanor, about the taxpayers. A very good point about that. Thank you. Uh, 210-599-5555. And it's so funny the way uh, history is repeating itself. So I vividly remember, and I think it was 2010, when president obama came out and he was signing a bill it was dodd-frank it was a banking regulation it was the response to the banking meltdown of 0708 or 060708 and um you know lehman brothers and all that stuff <clears throat> so they had this signing ceremony and obama had it at the reagan building which is the biggest federal building in washington dc and it was seen by many people as kind of an inside joke Because Barack Obama, among many other things, is, is a pretty cynical person. And so they think he chose the Reagan building, named after Ronald Reagan, to sort of skewer Republicans. Because here he was signing this massive, sweeping new regulation into effect of the banking industry. But in that signing ceremony, which we carried on the show at the time that it happened, I remember him saying, D- never again will there be bailouts. Never th- That is the last you're going to see of that. We're not doing that. Anyway. It was a very popular thing to say. People were very happy to hear that. You know who's standing right next to him when he said that? Plotting, just grinning his veneers off, Vice President Joe Biden. You watch. You watch. We're going to have bailouts. There'll just be a different slogan. There'll just be a different... Explanation, justification. I mean, even like Janet Yellen and, and, uh, what's the guy, Jerome Powell? Is he the Fed guy? They were in government when this happened. Yellen, uh, was in the Obama administration. She was the, I think she was the Fed chairman, wasn't she? And she was in the, um, I, I want to say both Yellen and Powell, I think were in government like back in the 90s and, and early 2000s, or at least I know, I know Powell was. This isn't even like Democrats and Republicans anymore. This is uniparty. This is the same, the same usual suspects every time. I want to play this for you. This was at uh, UT Austin and it was a man on the street uh, interview. Uh, so reporter Savannah Hernandez went and talked to a college student about white privilege. He's a white guy. And I just want, to, I just want you to hear this. It's, not, it's very, very short. Uh, but listen to this and then we'll talk about it on the other side. Take a listen.
5: I, I grew up as a white man and you're the exact opposite you know and so it's like my experiences are going to be different from yours how come? I think uh, you know there's a thing of like white privilege uh, what
6: privileges do you have that I don't have?
5: oh see that's a question I keep asking myself because like in this day and age like all the laws and I say all the laws you know I'm, it's hard to speak on something I'm not fully knowledgeable of so like I'm sorry if I like make a mistake uh, in saying this but it's like like uh, hmm
6: Don't you think it's a problem in society when white people think that they have more privileges than brown or black people?
5: Yeah, and I think that's sort of the agenda that's pushed off, because personally, it's like, not that I think I'm more privileged than anyone else, because I had to work to get where I was, and that's like the- So why
6: do you have that mentality immediately where you, you know, kind of apologize to me, like, let's talk about privilege, let's talk about, I'm a white man in America, so we could have grown up differently. got you. Why, Why is that your first initial reaction to me as a brown woman?
5: Wow, you're getting me good. See, these are the kind of conversations that I love having. Um, And I think it comes from a place of like, uh, I wouldn't say caution, but like in this day and age, people are so quick to judge and react and cancel. And so I guess it's that that like caution to go into an interview like this. I'm like, I don't know where we're at, but now I know where we're at and I can like uh, go for real.
1: Oh, man. What do you think of that? I got to tell you, I, I feel I feel really sorry for him. I mean, who did this to him? Because I don't know anything about anything. I don't know who he is. I don't know, I don't know him. Seems like a nice guy. He's somebody's son, right? He's somebody's. He's the apple of somebody's eye. What have we done to him that he blurted out his guilt for white privilege immediately? He is absolutely sure he has it and he absolutely has no idea what it is. And when she starts pushing him back, which apparently has never happened, I know he said I love conversations like this, but I don't think he's ever been in one. He has nothing to go on. Which means he has memorized the term, but he has not learned anything. So he He, and then he apologizes. So he's kind of, it gets more and more simpering as it goes. And then he even said, well, this is the agenda they put out. So he has like a glimmer. There's like a little something is flashing in the, in the periphery of his mental vision. Like, you know, I might have been set up here. (laughs) I mean, what do you think of hearing that? And how many young people would be, would be caught? By that question, what is your white privilege? What do you mean by that? What 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 have you had? I haven't seen any audience numbers yet for the Oscars. Have they come out with that yet, or do you know? Or... <laughs> do you think I'm watching for
0: that? Well, no, I mean, I know you're not uh, watching for it, but I thought it might have passed across your... I'll you know. tell you what, to be honest, I hadn't even thought of it, but I'll I'll see what I can find. Well, I just looked.
1: I, I, usually they have them the next day or maybe the day after, but uh, I didn't watch it. I know you didn't watch it. And mm-hmm. I, What's interesting to me is... I I don't think I know anybody, no. who watches it, and, and I have friends that are much hipper than me, you know, way more. <laughs> which I know is a shock. You're probably thinking, how how is that possible? But the, even they say, I don't really know who most of these people are. I don't really know what most of these movies are, um, and and there's always that other problem with award shows, which is you're watching a bunch of people pat each other on the back, you know, and like, what's that mean to me? Like, what am I supposed to care about that?
0: You know. Jack, the tables are turned. See, now you're hip if you don't watch it.
1: <laughs> oh, is that it? Yeah, you didn't yeah. get the memo? Yeah, well, then I'm, uh. then I'm, I'm as hip as they come. <laughs> yes, you are. But I, uh, but I did, I, I did hear something incredible. Thank you, Christian. Yeah, mm-hmm. if you do hear anything, we'll take it. Um, I did hear something incredible. Uh, I forget who told me this, but, and I did not know, so forgive me if this has been going on for years. Maybe, maybe this is not new, but I did not realize that, This is how, how far back it's been for me. I thought the Oscars were just on at night. Apparently they did an all day like, uh, preview, uh, interviews, uh, red carpet. I thought that was like maybe an hour before the show. Somebody said, Oh no, that was like four or five hours of continuous coverage. And I'm like, you know, this might explain a few things. You know, when it comes to like how we're voting and people don't know how the banks work and <laughs> I mean good grief. It's they're just movies. And I didn't watch, but I I have noticed in recent years when you watch a lot of these Hollywood people today, celebrities today, have you noticed they really don't know how to dress? Like I I realize everything they're wearing all these outfits cost more than all the clothes I own and have ever owned in my life combined. I realize that. And the clothes themselves, some of them look really nice, but the people wearing them just don't. It's like they didn't brush their hair or wash their face or, you know what I'm saying? Not so much the women. I'm talking mostly about you guys, you younger guys. It's like they're dressed in their parents' clothes. You know, you, they, they don't look there's not that old time elegance you know you would watch a movie star you know fifties, 60 years ago. movie stars like that's how i should look that's how a man should look that's these people honestly you know three thousand dollar silk tuxedo and they've got bedhead and stubble like they just rolled out of a cardboard box it's weird when did that start and why, who thought it would be a good idea to showcase that for like four hours before the show? We, you know, remember us? We would, we'd be going to church and our moms would be like licking their hands and smoothing down the, you know, somebody needs to do that for these guys. Anyway, 210 599 5555. All right. So I want to go back to the video of the, uh, the UT Austin kid. Uh, We don't know his name. He was interviewed by a Turning Point USA reporter named Savannah Hernandez. She's just asking him about white privilege. He knows how to answer, but he doesn't know what his answer means. Let me play it again. Take a listen to this. I I grew up as a
5: white man, and you're you're the exact opposite, you know? And so it's like my experiences are going to be different from yours. How come? I think, uh, you know, there's a thing of like white privilege. Uh,
6: what privileges do you have that i don't have
5: oh see that's a question I keep asking myself because like in this day and age like all the laws I say all the laws you know'm it's hard to speak on something i'm not fully knowledgeable of so like I'm sorry if I like make a mistake uh, in saying this
1: but it's like like uh, hmm all right Which hold think- on hold on hold on so what he's showing us is he's been given the headline but he didn't read the article he knows that he is supposed to uh, claim and be uh, uh, rueful for having white privilege. I mean, he looks in the mirror. A white guy is looking back at him. I'm white, therefore I have white privilege. They've told me this. I've heard it a million times. So I know I've got white privilege. Now here comes this Hispanic lady report, reporter asking me these questions, and he says to her, we're opposites. He doesn't know her. He's never met her. He doesn't know, for all he knows, she grew up on the street next to his. For all he knows, she had a more privileged upbringing than he did. For all she knows, he's she's the daughter of a billionaire. He doesn't know, but he's been told, I'm a white guy, she's a Hispanic woman, I've got privilege over her. She asks him, what is it? And he cannot even begin to answer the question, continue.
6: Don't you think it's a problem in society when white people think that they have more privileges than brown or black people?
5: Yeah, and I think that's sort of the agenda that's pushed off because personally, it's like, not that I think I'm more privileged than anyone else because I had to work to get where I was, and that's like the- So why
6: do you have that mentality immediately where you, you know, kind of apologize to me, like, let's talk about privilege, let's talk about I'm a white man in America so we could have grown up differently. I got you. Why, why is that your first initial reaction to me as a brown woman?
5: Wow, you're getting me good. See, these are the kind of, kind of conversations that I love having. Um, and I think it comes from a place of, like, uh I wouldn't say caution, but, like, in this day and age, people are so quick to judge and react and cancel. And so I guess it's that, that like, caution to go into an interview like this and, like, I, I don't know where we're at, but now I know where we're at and I can, like, uh, go for real.
1: I don't think he's ever had to think about it. I don't think he's ever had to think about it. I think he's been told that he has white privilege. He's been told he's guilty of it. He's accepted that. I mean, he's probably a good person, but what's been done to him is, 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 is a crime. Okay. And he blurts out the answer because he's been trained to. But these ghouls that trained him didn't even give him any material to back it up. You'd think they'd at least have said, now if you're challenged on that, or here's how to answer if there's a skeptic. But no, he has no... His calling card is, I'm white, I'm male, and I'm privileged. That's it. I'm not picking on him. I'm not. Don't, don't feel you have to defend him because I'm not picking on him. But this is what we're doing to young people today. And, and, and I mean, you may disagree with me about this, but as a, as a parent, I feel sorry for him. He's not much older than my daughter. I feel sorry for him. He's simping and simpering, and, 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 and he's in sort of a mental fetal position that is sad, hard to, hard to listen to. You're not seeing him, but just hearing him. I know you can tell that he's dumb because he's been kept that way, and he's scared because he's been told to be scared. And she's not aggressive, or you know, she doesn't yell at him or scream at him. Or th- she says, "How do you know?" And and he just he, he just doesn't know. Steve is on KTSA. Steve, good afternoon.
7: Good afternoon. I have a little funny story to tell about that. I'm telling you, these people, these Democrats, they are afraid of their own shadow. They are afraid that their own, their very own woke mob is coming after them. I was part of a group thread on Twitter, and we were discussing uh, the differences of where we were under uh, President Trump and where we are now. And this guy came at me with a... uh, he called me Jose, even though my name is clearly on there. He, he said, hey, Jose, uh, and he typed it out in, like, a broken English way, and my response was, don't bother to delete it. I've already taken the screenshot, and you're way out in the middle of the lake on very thin ice because your woke mob will cancel you for what you just wrote and how you wrote it. No response. Hello? You still alert? Mm-hmm. No response. Mm-hmm just disappeared, went and hid in the closet, did not want to further engage after that, because he Mm -hmm. realized then what he had done. Mm -hmm.
1: So how does that tie into what we just heard? How would you relate that to this?
7: Well, because this kid is afraid of his own shadow. He's afraid to answer the question truthfully, which is white privilege is a myth. I took it
1: differently. I, I I took it to mean that they told him he had it, But they never told him or defined it or explained it or justified it. So he only knows that he has it, but he can't. It would be like if, if the doctor told you you had a disease, Steve. And you met me and, and you said, I've just been told I have this disease. But then when I asked you questions about it, you didn't know anything about it. You didn't know if there was a treatment, an operation, a medicine, if it was fatal, if it was contagious. And see, he's been told he has something, but he has no depth on it at all. I feel sorry for him. I feel sorry for anyone that is brainwashed that way.
7: Absolutely, but you but he did say I've had to work hard, but then he, he kinda shut down yeah. oh, uh, yeah. I can't say yeah. that. Yeah. So yeah. he knows yeah. that he doesn't yeah. have white privilege. Yeah. He knows it's a myth.
1: Yeah, I thought that was interesting. He did say he worked hard and he also said I think that's the agenda they're pushing, yeah. Um, it was creeping in around the edges on this poor guy in Austin, but he couldn't he didn't have it. And I know it's one person. But it, 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 to me, it's emblematic of the product of how we're doing education now. Um, and I, I think it ties into the bank story in the sense of not having all the tools you should have to assess what's going on around you, what's happening to your money, what's happening with the government, what politicians are now saying. In other words, this, this bank story, which we'll be talking more about as we go along, obviously there's something to it. But it's also a great opportunity for scaremongering, and uh, as one of our first callers said, it's a it's a crisis they will exploit. When you have all that going on and you're producing ranks of people like this young guy in Austin, it's a recipe for disaster, I think. with this kid, his first answer he's he's a he's a, a white young man at u t. Austin, and he's being interviewed by a Hispanic uh reporter. Who's asking man on the street questions about white privilege, and um, he gives the programmed answer, but then we then he kind of peels back, and he he shows that underneath, even he knows it's not necessarily true. He says there's an agenda being pushed. He says I worked hard for what I have, but he's been very heavily covered up. He doesn't even relate to the question as an individual. He gives the, the race and class answer. It's like he's a, he's, he's not a person anymore. He's just a class. He's a race. And that's, that's how education is, is handling this issue. And the whole culture is handling this issue. And I can't blame him. I can sit here and say how wrong he is, but I've got 35 years on him. Okay, and a different education experience. Not a better one, just a different one. And so I I think he is the product of what we're producing. And that has implications for not only race, but every other thing that we talk about on this show. Getting your reaction to that. Michael is on KTSA. Michael, good afternoon.
8: Hey, Jack. Hey, I got kind of a different take on listening to that interview i i kind of felt like that kid doesn't believe in the white privilege thing at all and and that he's he saw the reporter and sort of gave an answer a safe answer and then he was sort of felt her out to see where she was at if you listen to the last line of the the interview he says okay well now i know where we're at and we can talk mm-hmm. for real or, or whatever he says mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah. so it, it's almost like he thinks the the white privilege is playing thing it safe he's playing it safe at first
1: yeah he's playing it safe and then he then he, when he gets the feel of it he, he starts to tell the truth but but isn't it striking michael that a person can be so trained that their first answer is is almost a robot answer it's it's, he says it immediately he has the language down pat he has no idea what it means
8: yeah i almost think it's more of a i i don't want confrontation type of answer in other words mm-hmm. you know i don't want this interview to get out of hand so i'm going to answer the way you know i so think let me ask you, you me this
1: let me ask you this cuz that that may be true but when you were that age if someone had asked your opinion about something Correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe you were a different 22-year-old or 23-year-old. You you had an opinion. You gave your opinion. You were pretty full of your opinion. It, it says, even if your theory is right, it says something to me that his first inclination is to f- rifle through his note cards in his brain and go, well, what can I say that will not cause trouble?
8: Yeah, you're totally right. But also, if when I was that age, I don't think whatever answer I gave would create confrontation between me and, and a uh, you know an interviewer. You know, it's kind oh, of it's, a you know, that's, time that's, that's where you give the right? wrong yeah, that, answer and right, you're right. sort of attacked. I don't know. Twenty years you're, ago, that you're saying you we been could speak more frankly
1: about race, right? You're saying we could I think talk so. about race. Yeah. I think so isn't so, that yeah. interesting? Isn't that interesting then that? The, the line from the left these days is things have never been worse we've never been more polarized and yet I agree with you just, just 20 or 30 years ago people could be friends with people who differed from them politically and you could talk about politics, you could go out and have a beer and, and have the discussion and, and agree to disagree and you were still friends And how is it progress that we can't do any of that anymore?
8: Well and it's kind of ironic because you know Barack Obama was famous for saying how we need to have a, a national conversation about race. Yeah. And we used to do that, and now yes. we can't.
1: <laughs> That's a very good point. Uh, so the people that said we needed to have one are the ones that have stifled it. That's a great point. Michael, thank you. Uh, how worried are you about your bank with all these headlines about the Silicon Valley Bank? 210-599-5555. We've also been talking about the uh, college guy. Up in the People's Republic of Austin, who got a little, uh, sideways over his white privilege. Here's an interesting survey. This is from, um, uh, Ipsos UK. So it's a survey of, uh, young people in, um, in the UK. And, um, specifically Gen Z and millennials. And I don't know if This this could be an outlier or this could be a sign of what's coming, but just listen to this. According to this survey, 52% of Gen Z and 53% of millennials agree with the statement, quote, we have gone so far in promoting women's equality that we are discriminating against men. And those numbers are higher then in older groups, like only 40% of baby boomers think that, only 44% of Gen X, my generation, believe that. But over half, these younger people, okay, and this was a survey of 22,000 people or something like that, we've gone too far in promoting women's equality to the point that we are discriminating against men. Now, discriminating is a big wide word. What do you mean? It's kind of like privilege. What do you mean? What do you What are you talking about? Give me some specifics. But I think in a way that kid in the in the in the um man on the street interview is kind of an, an example of of what I'm talking about. Have we gone so far in drumming into young people, young men notions like mansplaining and toxic masculinity and what have you. Have we gone so far that instead of creating or encouraging them to think better or be more open to women, have we really actually, like, beaten them down? Like, are we happy that there are now far more women getting college degrees than men? It was that the point. It was the decimation of young men. The point? I didn't think it was. I never heard any feminists say that. I never heard a feminist say we're gonna we're gonna beat the the young men of the world into a pulp and that's how we'll ascend. They said things like we want to be at seat at the table, we want to equal opportunity, we want to compete, we want to be in the workplace. But it seems to me like broadly, generally. What we've achieved is a lessening of ambition and confidence in young men. We talked about this the other day, I think, on the show. I believe it was on the show where we talked about how that you have more and more young guys that sort of don't know how to dress, sort of don't know how to act, maybe don't know how to be chivalrous or polite or gentlemanly. because, Because we decided all of that was old school and unimportant and it contributed to the masculine hierarchy and the patriarchy and so we and now as the old saying goes now we've torn down some fences that we didn't first learn why they had been put up yeah it sounds it sounds to me like people are starting to again it's one survey not, I'm not going to pin too much on it but it sounds to me like people are starting to question whether we're making progress or we're just kind of moving the deck chairs around And I I like the conversation we had with the gentleman right before the break about if it was easier to talk about race or if it was easier for white and black people to talk or to be friends 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, then what have we done to that? And who's done it? And I go back to when I was a kid, How we were really, really encouraged and, um, kind of surrounded by the idea of being colorblind. And, um, it was a very appealing, I I never felt like it was coerced, but it was a very appealing idea to me as a young person. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to look past this person's outward appearance. I'm going to look for who they are. And I'm going to um, either befriend them, or be attracted to them, or uh, relate to them by who they show me that they are. But I'm not going to first put them in a folder. And and I believe we do that now at all levels. That's that's I mean the government, employers, the colleges. The, the culture, there's, there's an entire subculture of people for whom race is a business and they make no bones about it. Remember all the, remember all the shock people seem to have when they found out that the BLM founders had the mansions? I wasn't shocked at all. We knew that was big business. We knew if you're, if you're picking up five and six figure consultancies from Fortune 500 companies, you're making good money. And look, more power to you if you can make it. But you're making money off that, okay? You, let's be honest, it's a business. It's an industry. And so, yeah, I think we have I think we've I think we've gone backwards, or we've been dragged backwards. and I go back to what we were talking about earlier. Um, those in power do not want us to be better educated, better thinkers. They are very happy to keep us in the dark and feed us you-know-what. And that's why you had what you had during COVID, and that's why you had the panic. What was it just last week? The panic last week. This week it's the banks. Last week it was the, Tucker Carlson has the J6 video, and he's going to show it, and they've given it all to him. And, oh, my God, people, what will, what will he show People. When, first of all, there shouldn't have been anything he could show us that would be any problem. Haven't you been telling us the truth? Haven't you been telling us what happened? Why are you worried? If you told us the truth, what would 40,000 hours of video mean to you? Nothing. You told us the truth. You told us what happened. But people looked at it and said, well, wait a minute. This isn't what they told us. This is not what we were told. And I think it's interesting that um, this race to keep people kind of in the dark and to program rather than educate people, the thing that's fouling it up, ironically, is technology. The thing that's fouling up the plan is technology. Because, yes, you can... Indoctrinate, you can write curricula, you can brag about how you're foiling and ignoring your conservative governor and you're doing, you're teaching cr- critical race theory anyway. You can do all that. And you have total control of that educational apparatus. They've, they've, the, the left has, has completely taken it over. But there's that pesky little ability people still have. It's, it's a, it's, it's a little tricky but they can find alternative sources they can find alternative viewpoints they can get involved with something like prager u or you know follow jordan peterson on twitter or whoever whatever <clears throat> and they can they can say you know there is another way to think about this stuff or there's another way to to relate to this stuff and maybe even if you rewrite the history books you can't rewrite the ones that have already been written and are already sitting around out there on a shelf somewhere or in a bookstore somewhere. People get a hold of those, it only takes one book, the right book. You know, think about it. There's there's millions of books in print. But if a young person reads nineteen eighty four or Fahrenheit four hundred fifty one or Brave New World, just to name a few. It could change everything everything so they've got a pretty good plan and it looks like it's going to be hard to foil but there are you know there are gaps in their fortifications and and and, and I think technology is is also part of that we're live right now on KTSA and available as an on demand podcast whenever you want it uh just go to ktsa.com uh and look for on demand or look for the Jack Riccardi show wherever you like to get your other podcasts President Biden came out this morning to give a talk about the Silicon Valley bank failure. And I thought the most interesting thing about the uh, appearance was how fast he got off the stage. You know, he sometimes looks a little disoriented at these uh, events. But he was a man with on a mission to get out the door before they could ask him any questions. He knew where to go. He moved with swiftness. And there was no stopping him. <laughs> he got the hell out of there. Um because the line is, uh, we're on this and it's going to be okay. we got a plan. We've got Janet Yellen and we've got a plan. And the, the message from the White House is none of the money that's going to shore up the depositors and investors with Silicon Valley Bank, none of the money is coming from taxpayers. It's coming from a tax on banks that funds the FDIC. Uh, who, who, who do they think that money comes from? In, in the end, you pay for it. And they're blowing smoke. Money in the banks is our money. Fees that prop up these funds are our money. Now, there's a congressman, Ro Khanna. He's a far left progressive congressman from California. He represents the district that this Bank is in. He was on uh, with Margaret Brennan on CBS's Face the Nation. Is that is it Face the Nation? I think it is. Um, listen to a little of this. I want to roll in and out of this a little bit. Cut number three done.
4: I have great respect for Secretary Yellen, but I think we need to have more clarity and greater uh, strength in what Treasury is saying. First, the principle needs to be that all depositors will be protected and have full access to their accounts Monday morning.
3: All depositors, meaning those with accounts bigger than $250,000, which is the cutoff for insurance right now.
4: Yes, all of them. There's precedent for this. Chair Powell, when he was at Treasury in 1991, the Bank of New England collapsed. And Chair Powell said the Treasury coordinated with FDIC and with the Fed, and they insured every depositor then. And why did they do it? They didn't want a regional run on the banks. Here's what I'm hearing. Okay, hold
1: on, hold on. So um, I remember that because I lived in New England at that time. Bank of New England was an old institution It that it, it went bust. There were lines. There was a run on it. That's all true. People like Ro Khanna, I don't think he was in politics 33 years ago, 32 years ago, but uh, people like Ro Khanna would have been screaming the loudest, right? Oh, it's the old boy network. Oh, Bush administration taking care of its its uh, Boston Brahmin, you know, buddies. I mean, the idea that a progressive leftist would reference the Bank of New England uh, rescue to justify his district's biggest bank is hilarious. And, of course, he repeated the whole thing about, oh, you know, the FDIC insurance is just, That's, that's just a tax on banks. That's, that doesn't affect people or come, uh, you know, from people at all. And they keep talking about, he said it, they're all saying it. We're gonna, we're not gonna pay heed to that $250,000 cutoff. If that's the rule, why is that never obeyed? If you say we insure deposits up to $250,000, what you're telling people is don't put more than $250,000 in a bank if you have any concern or need to be concerned about its availability. I'll give you an example, and I, I can't remember his name, but one of the big stars in the NBA, a guy that plays now, and I read this recently, and I... I didn't pay attention to it. It wasn't important to me at the time I read it. But he's one of the big stars. And he was talking about how when he made his bag, somebody out there may, may know who I'm talking about, by the way, when I tell the story. Maybe you'll remember this. But when he made his bag and he got his millions, he spread his money around. He put it in a lot of different banks. And they asked him why he was doing that. he said, I don't want more than $250,000 in any of these banks. I mean, this is a guy that's got beaucoup money. But he knew that that rule, and he thought, well, I, I'll make sure if any one of these banks blows up, I've got the insurance. If, if it's not the rule, if we're going to say, well, when there's an emergency or when... then just don't have the rule. Every time, in every administration... We blow past it. And literally, the man who's president was part of an administration that said the last time we will not do bailouts. Well, they're not going to call it a bailout. You can call it Harry or, you know, Frank. It's it's still going to be a bailout. Do you think when a baby is born, Christian, they can look down at the baby and tell
0: that this baby is going to be a bank president someday? It's a great question because when my son was born, I looked at him and said, "He's not going to manage a bank." <laughs> I
1: actually, they all kind of look—they—they they don't look like they're going to be capable of too much there at first, do they? No. no. Somebody once said they all—they all look a little like Winston Churchill at first, but uh, <laughs> right. But yeah, no, I was just thinking about this guy, this uh, Silicon Valley bank guy, this Greg Baker. Mm-hmm, yeah, you saw—he put out a video that was pathetic. Just, I'm so sorry. Right. I am so concerned for all of you. He says to his employees, I'm going to ask you. And I, I hate to ask, but I'm going to ask you if you just hang in there with us for a few days and just help us out, help our, help our clients. This is a guy that sold all his stock in the bank the end of last week
0: and gave bonuses. Yeah, how Much right before was, this happened. How much was his salary? I saw this earlier this morning. I didn't um I lost track of it, but uh uh the people running both of these banks, they're not gonna mm. miss a meal. Mm mm. Mm mm. No. Mm-hmm. But he put on his little sweatshirt. You know, I'm just a man of the people here. I'm just Does this have kind of an Enron feel to you?
1: I don't know because I don't know if people really ever knew what Enron did. Yeah. I mean, we found out later, but yeah. Enron was kind of a was kind of a, a I guess you'd say kind of a, a a creation. Yeah. Whereas we should be able to fairly well understand how a bank works or how mm-hmm. it's supposed to work, and uh, yeah. But I I I got to say, as much as we can pile on this guy, and he certainly seems kind of sleazy. They know they'll be bailed out. I mean, if if you worked in a business where you knew. No matter which administration's in power, no matter which
0: party's in power, they're going to do it. They're going to say they won't, but then they will. It would kind of influence what you did. That kind of knocks down the incentive to to be a successful business, doesn't it? Mm. Or to be prudent or even well, yeah. to be kind of uh
1: maybe, you know, maybe to be kind of a, hey, show me, you know, you're, you're going to have to really show me more before you get this loan. Yeah. But I, I I would think in a way, I, I've never been in the banking industry, but when I look at how readily politicians run to their aid, well, I mean, I guess you would take chances, right? We need this in radio, don't we? Oh, man. If radio companies <laughs> you know? knew, yeah, oh, oh, if, ra- if the radio industry knew that it would get bailed out, Hello.
0: Yeah, ratings, exactly. are, ratings are down, but don't worry. <laughs>
1: yeah, we got a plan. We <laughs> got a know? plan for that. Sure. Janet Yellen has a plan for that. All right. Thank you, sir. Uh, 210-599-5555. I thought this was very interesting. Uh, Congressman Tom Massey on Twitter said that, uh, he was in a briefing. Now I read this today. So I don't know if he tweeted this today or if he tweeted it over the weekend. I often will read tweets, but I'll forget to look at the date stamp on them. So anyway, he, but I follow him on Twitter, and he's an interesting guy. He's a libertarian uh, congressman. And he had been in a briefing, a bipartisan briefing, uh, that I guess the Treasury Department gave them about the banking crisis. And he said, no joke, a Democratic senator, and he had the courtesy to not name him or her, so the Democratic senator asked if there was a um, plan in place to censor or control social media in case there began to be a run on the banks or a bank panic in this country. Their first thought is how do we control the, the proles The serfs, how do we, how do we make sure they don't rise up against us? I mean, this is coming right on the heels of all the backfilling and backpedaling and, and, and so forth with COVID and the admissions of, yeah, we, we, a lot of the stuff we called conspiracy theories turned out to be valid. They have learned nothing they have reformed nothing they have not turned over a new leaf there isn't a new attitude we have a question was how do we control people getting information about this from your elected representative 210 599 5555 and yeah i mean the the promise of insuring and covering these deposits the president the Secretary of the Treasury, various other politicians. Oh, it won't come from the taxpayers. It'll come from these funds that we have. All of it is from us. Everything is, is us. The, the government doesn't produce a product or service. It only has the extraction of taxes and fees. And when they extract them from businesses, the businesses pass them along to the customers. Well, we're the customers. So you can call it special and unique, and you can give it a new name. Looks to me, until I can be persuaded otherwise, looks to me like we're going to do more or less the same thing we did in 2008. Now, you might think that that was the right thing to do, or that was the only thing to do, and and that's fine. But do you know how many political careers have been made by running against that, including Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton and numerous and sundry Republicans. So they ran against it and they said, don't worry, the Fed will pay for it. The FDIC will pay for it. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers, but they will charge the banks for those losses. When they do... You will have to pay this fee and you will have to pay this interest and you will have to. It's, it still comes back to you and me. And I believe that part of the reason this keeps happening, it's like, you know, Charlie Brown running, running after that football and trying to kick it. The reason we keep falling for this is because systematically over a period of decades, we've degraded the average person's grasp or understanding of capitalism, of economics, of, of financial laws, of the rules of the road. And when you saw how panicked professional political classes in both parties, not just the Democrats, I mean, Mitch McConnell had a conniption fit over the release of that J6 video. And many other Republicans did too. Mitt Romney, Larry Hogan. Okay. They are afraid of you and I being better educated, better informed, and they are interested in. They have a vested interest in each new generation of Americans having less of an interest in, less of an understanding of the stuff that underpins the nightly news. You can you can let them have the news. You can you can let these poor slobs watch the news. But they don't, as long as they don't understand the Constitution or separation of powers or, uh, you know, the, the Econ 101, we got them. And then we can send, uh, you know, President Zombie out there and say, oh, well, it, it, it won't come from you. We have a fund. 210-599-5555. I, um, I feel like this all kind of connects. What do you think? You know, there's, it's hard not to see, I don't mean I have like a thing on the wall with pins and yarn strings, but I mean, it's kinda hard not to see the value of an educational system that emphasizes fuzzy concepts like um, critical race theory and uh, selecting one's gender, and fussing with pronouns, and sanitizing American history and doing new math so that math isn't straightforward anymore. A, a, a mom or dad can't sit at the kitchen table and, and work through the problems with their children because the way the problems get solved now, even the prob- the way the problems get written now isn't the way you and I learned it. I mean, you, you, you might have been a whiz at math when you were in high school 30 years ago. It means nothing now. It means nothing. So, It's hard not to see a connection between all that and then running a line of jive about this won't come from the taxpayers, right? Jack here on KTSA right now. You can join me, 210-599-5555. So I don't know if this these numbers are correct or not. They come from a nonprofit group, but it says that three-quarters of us in this state do not have any paid leave from our jobs, and three-fifths of us have uh, only unpaid leave. So I don't know if that's true or not. That's what they say. And I was reading this in an article that says the legislature is going to consider a paid parental leave benefits bill that would require companies to give eligible employees up to 12 weeks of paid leave when they have a newborn or adopted child. And you would get paid either by your employer and or by a state fund that would be established to augment what the employer could pay you. Now, um, I don't know how you feel about paid leave and the idea of a law, but when I see politicians angsting about parents and the struggle of, working parents, having a baby, and needing time. <clears throat> I hate the fact that we let the politicians off the hook so easily. We are so easily deflected by their seemingly sincere concern for us. Oh, we want to get you paid leave. We, want to, we need to help you uh, with some paid leave. And what they're hoping you won't think about is that the tax burden is why both working and having a kiddo is so hard. Because, and I'm going to say it, and I know it's going to make me unpopular, and I don't care. Used to be when you had a baby, you stayed home with the baby for a while. You became a one-income household. And, in fact, I I grew up in a one-income household. That was the only kind we had. My mother didn't work while we were all at home. We were not rich. My father never made big money. We drove used cars. We paid our bills. We didn't have credit cards. We had clothes from consignment stores, which were nice but not new. We didn't have anything fashionable. Uh, We didn't take a vacation. We never went anywhere. I, I know this is shocking, but we... We never went on a Disney cruise. (laughs) I know, I know. It's like a war crime. But I mean, um, don't you think, and I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying there's no use for, no need for paid leave or maternity leave or paternity leave or whatever we want to call it. But don't you think if they cared, really cared, um, the first order of business would be to make the tax burden on people as light as possible. Let us please only ask for the barest minimum of what we absolutely need just to do the basic vital things of government, just the basics. As Calvin Coolidge famously said, government should do a few things vigorously and well. It was either Calvin Coolidge or Teddy Roosevelt, I always forget. That would impress me. You know, you, you you give a speech about that or you make a move in that direction, hey, we really need to get off people's backs so that when a when a when somebody is starting a family, if they want to and they figure out how to, they can just stay home. I don't mean take leave, I mean stay home. And be there for their child. And maybe walk with them to school or be there when they come home from school or homeschool them. See, that was possible not so long ago. And you're hearing me say it now, and you're like, well, what do you want me to do next, churn my own butter? I mean, Jack, come on, that's not realistic. We both need to work. We're not doing luxury items. We're not taking the Disney cruise, but we we need two incomes. I know you do. I didn't say you didn't need them. I said you shouldn't need them. I'm saying you need them because of these same politicians that are giving speeches about how they're so concerned about you that they want to create parental leave. And again, you may think that this is the best solution and you support what they're doing. I'm not telling you what to think. I never do that. I just give you other ways to think. What if, assuming they really care about you and the burden what if they said well we're we're the reason we're the ones costing you we're the ones putting the the financial pressure on you what if there was less government much lower taxes and you could stay home with your baby 210-599-5555 i i, I just i think it's another way to think of it Like when they say they want to help, they always then tell us how they're going to help. They never ask us, how could we help? What do you need? What would you like? Right? They always they always have the um they always get to define the problem and the solution. And we're supposed to just sit there and go, Oh, great. Thanks for being in touch with us. You're so real. But I think I think if we care about families and family life and the quality of the parental bond, I, I think smaller government makes for a better family. It means that families can make choices without having to constantly feed the beast. And I know what people are saying. You're, well, what if I want to work? I'm not telling you you can't, but what if you don't want to work? What if your job, what if your highest aspiration is to raise your child? The tax burden in this country, in this day and age, almost makes that impossible. One other thing I'll just point out, I'm not trying to be flippant, but it is also rich to see politicians that are so supportive of abortion, so so consecratory of abortion, it's like a, it's it's not just a, uh, a thing you would, uh, you know, a last resort. They they talk about it like it's a holy sacrament. And then they turn around and they give these speeches about we're very concerned about family life. Oh my gosh. You must really, you must think we're even stupider than you've tried to make us, right? We're concerned about families.
4: i in a quicksand and I'm starting to sing. I need someone to help me, but I don't
3: say whether there will be other regional bank failures.
2: Well, look, let me just say that we want to make sure that the troubles that exist at one bank don't create contagion uh, to others that are sound. And um, a goal always of supervision and regulation is to make sure that contagion can't, uh, can't occur your counterpart
1: in the united kingdom. Mm. Yeah, a little free advice to the Biden administration. Um you're going to be talking a lot about the bank thing. You need to find a better messenger <laughs> than Janet Yellen. That's that's going to be rough. Um 210-599-5555. Uh we're talking about uh in the legislature a bill, it's bipartisan, uh that would make more parental leave benefits more available they they would have to be available um, when you have a baby or adopt a child because according to their numbers most Texan workers do not have that uh, paid or unpaid um, so getting your thoughts on that right now should there be mandatory parental paid leave and Joe is on KTSA Joe good evening
3: hey sir thanks for taking my call sure thing So uh, my thing is I've been at the same job for 30 years, and Mm. I don't know anybody across every single department that could leave for 12 weeks and still be necessary. Like who does that work
1: Mm. when they're gone? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you're saying um, if your job is important in any way, if you're doing something that the company needs you to do, they can't possibly spare you that long. And I guess if they could spare you that long, maybe they don't really need you.
3: Exactly. I, I right. have 30 years this year, so I get five weeks paid vacation, and mm-hmm. I would never leave five weeks in a row and think mm-hmm. I would come back and my stuff wouldn't be in a box.
1: Right, right. I mean, right. who's going
3: to do that work?
1: You kind of get the feeling that when politicians think about the workplace, it's, uh, they've never been to one.
3: Well, didn't Pete Buttigieg like take time off when they adopted a kid? Him and his partner, and yes, I mean they didn't. There was no recovery time. They just adopted. Um, yeah. But you forget,
1: Joe. He's not really an essential employee. We've as we've come to find out, it's. <laughs> I think. I think if he took twelve weeks off, I don't think we. I don't think we'd notice.
3: Or we'd be better off.
1: We might even we. You know what? Let's sign a petition. Let's get them twelve more weeks. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. That's a okay, good point thanks. about twelve weeks, though. I, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, look, I, 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 I applaud Parenthood. I support Parenthood. I'm respectful of it. I've, I've done it. I do think if you are in public life, and you, if you genuinely want to hear from us, We the People. I think what we would like is to be able to keep more of what we earn. I know that sounds really basic, and you, you like to make things complicated because you're a politician, but we, we, we would like to keep more of what we earn. And if, if people can keep more of what they earn, all kinds of things become more possible. The worst way to help us is to create more mandates, more government, and then sit back and pat yourself on the back. The best way to help us is to back out of our lives. And I understand you've been trained the opposite. You believe the opposite. You, you can't wrap your head. This sounds like some crazy off-the-grid thinking, what is this guy, some paleo guy? But, but it wasn't that long ago that that's what Americans most want of both parties, that's what Americans most wanted, was to be left alone by their government. Now, would it solve all of our problems? Of course not. But I look at my mom and dad, and they get married, and they start having kids, and their plan was to have kids, and they had kids. And, um, my mom stopped working joyfully, uh, was a stay at home mom, although we didn't even have that term. I don't, there wasn't a, there wasn't a term for what my mom did because most, Of the kids I knew, their mom was doing that. And whether it was taken on happily or unhappily or mixed, and maybe there were days my mom was bored or frustrated or we drove her crazy, but the reason they could do it was because we could live on my dad's income, which was not high, believe me. He wasn't an executive or something. He was a... He had a a very mid-level drone kind of position. He was a cost estimator in a department full of cost estimators at a defense contractor. That's what he did. By the way, here's the other thing that I I always like to tell the story. My dad hated his job. He worked at that company for 30, I think it was 38 years. And the only reason I know that is because they gave him a, a Lucite block with his, um, ID card in it, you know, the card to get into the plant. That was, that was their, you know, that was their congratulatory gift. And it had a sticker on it that he had been there 38 years. I have it on my desk. It's a paperweight. Anyway, he worked at this company, hated the job, hated the, the company 38 years, did it because it was five minutes from our house. They had good insurance and it paid our bills. He wasn't, I never in my life heard him ponder, am I fulfilled? Does my work have meaning? Um, Is this what I was meant to do? Like my mom, he he had always wanted to have a a big family. He'd always wanted to be a dad, which I find weird because his dad was cold and aloof and remote. So I don't know where he got it, but he, he loved being a dad. My mom loved being a mom and they could do the one-income thing. And believe me, we were not suffering. We were not scrimping. We weren't, it wasn't like hard scrabble life. When I look back, I realize there were all kinds of things that kids today would expect that we didn't have, but in that moment, we were okay with it. We were fine. We didn't feel poor or anything. We weren't poor. There, there is a way to live like that, and, and even now there's a way to live like that, and I know there are people who do. But if government really wants to help, make that easier to do. And still not everybody will choose it, but more people will choose it. Get out of our lives. Stop charging us for all your nonsense. Only take in taxes what is absolutely most needed. Just the basics. we got to come to us with you know, hey, we're just going to do the bare bones, you know. Everything else is yours, keep it, we, you know. But that's not what they do, is it? In fact, um, if anything, they, they seem almost entitled uh, or more entitled to our income than we are. I love when politicians describe people who want lower taxes as greedy, Right? You want to, you want to keep more of what you earn? You're so greedy. What's the matter with you? You Gordon (laughs) Gecko. Only a politician could see it that way. On the uh, JR poll uh, across all our platforms, the question was, how worried are you about your bank? Presumably, you're not banking with Silicon Valley Bank. I understand, but are you worried about your bank at this point? Um, 54% say they're somewhat worried. About their bank. 40% say they're not worried. 6% very worried. New poll question tomorrow we get started at 4 or find it anytime at KTSA.com. I predict we're going to have a whole new wave of those feel-good bank commercials. You know, Golden Lab, kids splashing around in the swimming hole. You know, we're here for you. We're solid.
2: You've always been able to
1: depend on us, like that old elm in the back, just kind of shading over your life. We're such and such bank here for you. Did you get all that on tape, Don? I think we just did the commercial.
2: Well, let me be clear that um, (laughs) during the financial crisis, um, there were... Um, Tomorrow, you need to
1: find some Carol Channing so we can explain why she's the Carol Channing of the banking crisis. All right. I, I thought this was fascinating. According to the data from the recording, in, the recording industry. In, I'll try again. The recording industry association of America. They're the people that track the sales of music, basically. They keep the data. Um, vinyl records have just become better selling. Then compact discs for the first time since 1987. In 2022, according to the RIAA data, the sales of physical units of music, records, vinyl records, surpassed CDs with a total of 41 million, while CDs had 33 million. And it's been sixteen years of consecutive sales growth for vinyl, culminating in it now being back on top. And I was in a Barnes and Noble the other day for the first time in a long time because I usually just buy books online. But I was in a Barnes and Noble, and the um, I went in the music section just to look around, and I was it was amazing to see an entire wall of vinyl, you know, categorized, alphabetized, pop, jazz. It's just like you don't. I never thought I'd see that again. I mean, you expect to see vinyl for sale like at half-price books or uh, you know consignment places, but this was a new, new store. So yeah, uh, the vinyl boom is back, and um, a lot of reasons. According to the RIAA, among them, during the pandemic, uh, artists began releasing music on vinyl again, um, and there are more and more people who have acquired high-end. Turntables and speakers, and have come to swear by the superior audio quality of what I guess you would call analog versus digital. Now, there's no question about that. I mean, if, if you if you bridge both eras like I do, and you play both on the radio and you play both at home, there's, there is no question that with a good needle and a good re- a turntable and a good condition piece of vinyl, it does sound richer and fuller. But I guess I wouldn't have expected that enough people would be vested enough in it to do that. There's, what does that say really, right? I mean, the fact that we, the fact that we're once again buying more vinyl records, is that just like a temporary thing or are people going to go back to actually physically owning music as opposed to downloads and, and, you know, having playlists? I don't
7: know. I was just thinking that, um, with a good pair of headphones, there is nothing better than that sound when when you drop the stylus on that vinyl. Mm-hmm. It just there's mm-hmm. a, there's a a particular sound that's hard to describe, mm-hmm. but it's so warm and inviting. Mm-hmm. It's just it's mm-hmm. a great sound, it really is. Who knew? I mean, you know,
1: guys like you and I would have said this years ago, and people would have been like, "Oh, you're crazy! You know, you want to have to replace the needle all the time and clean the vinyl, and this is uh, okay." Welcome to our party, you know. Welcome to the, but uh, but first time since nineteen eighty seven. You know the other thing I'm wondering about, and I don't know. I don't have the breakdown. It would be interesting to know what they're buying. Like, is the vinyl buyer buying the same artists in the same proportions, or buying the same categories in the same proportions as the CD buyer, or the digital buyer? Because I have a funny feeling that people might be filling in their collections with, like, classic vinyl. Like, that might be what's driving some of this or a lot of this. So are they really, like, are, are they actually, like, buying, you know, new artists on vinyl? Or are they filling in their collection with, oh, I don't have the Eagles' Greatest Hits or I don't have Rumors by Fleetwood Mac? I don't know. We'll See if we can find that out and all kinds of other things. And we meet back here tomorrow at four on the radio or anytime. Jack Riccardi show as a podcast.